Good morning. So we're going to be in Acts, uh, no, not Acts, what are we in? Ecclesiastes, sorry. That's all right, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. We're going to be in our last um, sermon in uh, going through Ecclesiastes today. And um, so if you want to find Ecclesiastes 12, I'm going to read uh, the verses up there before. Before we get started, Ecclesiastes 12, and I'm going to pick up at verse 8, but just before I read Ecclesiastes 12, verse 8, I'm going to actually read a couple of verses at the very beginning of Ecclesiastes, because as we finish today, I want us just to get the full picture. So I'm going to start with Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, and then I'm going to flip over to the last chapter. Ecclesiastes 1.1 says, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, and we know that's Solomon, who also wrote Proverbs and Song of Solomon. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is Meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? And he just and we see that refrain all the way through Ecclesiastes. Emptiness, emptiness, meaningless. Uh, drop down to verse 12. He says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore wisdom. All that is done under the heavens or under the sun, that's that same refrain. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless and chasing after the wind. And I I trust as we conclude here today and we've gone through this that, that if that's how you're feeling this morning, empty, like what is, what's the point? That as we come to a conclusion this morning that um, God's word will be Helpful. So Ecclesiastes 12, verse 8. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless. And he concludes with that same, same phrase. Verse 9. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. And and that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is. He's, He's searching out everything. He searched out pleasure and work and relationships and death and dying and worship. He searched out everything under the sun. Verse 11, The words of the wise are like goads or like a spur. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, 
whether it is good or evil. Let me pray. Father, again I ask you just before we look at these words, your words, that your Holy Spirit would teach us, would direct my words, and would direct our hearing. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit is teaching us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So the point, if I'm to kind of this meaningless, meaning everything is empty, meaningless. The point is, is that when God is not factored in, okay? When God is not factored in and and all our focus is, is our senses, what we can see, smell, hear, taste, touch. If that's what drives us, then life will end empty. Will be empty. And so it says whether the pursuit is pleasure and we just go harder and harder and harder after pleasure, we drink more, we drug more, we party more, we, or whether it's work we're going after and we work harder, we work harder, we work harder, whether it's relationships or success or prestige or possessions or, or advancement or anything else, if, if it happens apart from God, If it does not consider God, then it will end empty. It will be empty. Um, in Ecclesiastes 3.11, one of the verses we've already looked at, it says that God placed eternity in the hearts of mankind. I, I love one of my favorite verses among thousands of others. But God has placed eternity in the hearts of of humanity. He, he's created us in His image. He's created us for Himself. We're made for God. We're made for way more than just what we can see, touch, taste, smell, hear. God made us for Himself. He made us for intimate relationship with Him. Isn't that incredible? The God of the universe. And as we come to the end of Ecclesiastes 12, twice in verse 1, then again in verse 6, it says, Remember Him. Remember Him. And as a result, I mean, what God is saying is that it is and will always be impossible to find fullness of life, satisfaction in life, fulfillment, if God isn't a part of it. Because God made us for himself. If, if you're going through life and, and God isn't a part of it, it will end empty. I mean, right now, maybe you're in the middle of, oh man, this is, I am having the blast of my life. I am partying and playing and, or working or relate, and I'm, this is life. I promise you, it will end empty. It will end empty if God isn't a part of it. If we're seeking to experience fullness of life purely from the things of this world, as Ecclesiastes describes it, things that are under the sun, it will result in emptiness. We were made for God. So as we come to the end of Ecclesiastes, we come to this conclusion. He says, remember in verse 13, he says, 
all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. And, and that's what we're going to look at again this morning. We've touched on it a couple of times already. But he says, this is, this is the conclusion. And this is the point. Fear God and keep His commandments. But before we do that, I want us to go back to, to verse 9. And because there's an important warning, and I think it's something that easily trips us up. Um, I think it can, I know it's tripped me up in my life. Um, it's an important warning to keep us from meaninglessness um, with something that we might think is creating meaning, and that's words. Okay? Verse 9. It's words. Um, Notice the teacher was wise. He imparted knowledge. He pondered, searched out, set in order many proverbs, principles for living. The teacher searched to find just the right words. These are good words, upright, true words. They're words like goads, meaning they they spur us on. They convict us. They challenge us. They're good words. They're words like nails that can fix truth in place in order for living They're words that come from God, he says, given by one shepherd. But notice, he says, be warned of making many books. There is no end, and much study wearies the body. There can be too many words. I want us to put down a couple examples to maybe help us understand this. Have you ever fit into one of these scenarios yourself? Where you... You need to read the latest book on how to be happy or how to raise kids or or how to be successful at work or how to not be depressed or or how to have a good prayer life or how to witness effectively. And and you just feel like you didn't quite get it, so you need to read the latest book that just came out in order to get it. That's a wrong focus on words. Or maybe you're trying to remember the seven principles of whatever it was in the book you just read because you, you can only remember the first four and the last two and you can't remember. And you're thinking, good grief, if I don't remember those seven principles, what's going to happen? Or you're trying to remember the points of the sermon that Daniel preached last week. So you can live by them, and you can't remember the points, and you're, oh, good grief, I've got to go back, and i got to listen to that message, because I, I don't remember those points. Or you're trying to remember the exact words in a lesson, or a book, or a sermon, in order to do them. Do we get it? How good words, and I think that's what the teacher is teaching here, how good words can become wearying words and meaningless words, when our pursuit is words instead of God. The point of the words is to, to know God, and, but sometimes I think we can get hung up in words that we've we got to remember the words, we've got to remember the, the points, the principles. And the teacher says, even his own words, there can be too many of them, right? Have you become hung up on words instead of the simple conclusion he, he comes to here and he says, this is, the, this is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. Fear God. Um, and as you know, 
if you've been here, we've looked at this before. I want to just review really quickly. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 14. He says, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear Him. That's the point. God wants people to fear Him. Look at chapter 5, verse 7. Starting at verse 6, says, Don't let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger, My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Fear God. Same thing, fear God. Look at verse 7, chapter 7, verse 18. It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other, meaning don't be overly righteous and overly wicked. He's saying don't be a goody two-shoes and don't be a trying to be a bad boy. Don't be overly wicked or overly righteous. It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Fear God. Do you fear God? And chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Although a wicked person who commits a crime may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before Him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. And and then we come to the ultimate conclusion in Ecclesiastes 12:13 fear God so the question i want us to look at this morning as we come to this conclusion just is how can we get what fearing god means now in the past i've compared it to um, the fear we have for other things um, like the fear of spiders, arachnophobia, I mean, and, and how it can dominate us, or agoraphobia, how being in, in open places can dominate us, or um, acrophobia, how fear of heights can dominate us. And, and I think that's the gist of what, what is being talked about. When it says fear God, it says be consumed with, be fixated upon, let your life, your consciousness, your awareness be dominated by God. But this morning, what I'd like to do is we just kind of, to, to get this, is I'd like to tell you a story. So, if you brought your blanket, I'm going to tell you a story. And if you want, you can go back to Genesis chapter 22. The story is actually going to be out of Genesis 22. And I think it's one of the best stories or illustrations there are of helping us to understand what it means to be a people who fear God. When we come to Genesis chapter 22, we come to the story of God calling Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Out of the blue, God says, Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love, take him to the land of Moriah, to a place that I'm going to tell you, and I want you to sacrifice him there. Um... Now, I think we usually look at this story from the perspective of Abraham and and the faith and the obedience it took to trust God 
who had given him this son, this his only son, the promised one, and, and the faith and the obedience it took to believe that God knew what he was doing. And Abraham did. We come to Hebrews chapter 11, and it's incredible. Abraham, in obeying God, he obeyed God because it says in Hebrews 11 that he knew that if, if he were to sacrifice Isaac, God would raise him back from the dead. He was so convinced of God's faithfulness that he knew that if he were to take his life, God would raise him up again. And so often, usually we're looking at it from Abraham's standpoint, but this morning... We're going to look at it from Isaac's perspective and the impact it made on Isaac. And then, so here goes. Isaac, as I just showed, he was a miracle baby. When Isaac was born, Abraham was 100 years old. That's a little bit older than me. Sarah was 90, a lot older than my wife. <laughs> Notice how tactful that was. The, uh, and uh, so he was American. He was supernatural. I mean, not very many people when they're 190, 100 years old and 90 have babies. In fact, I think this might be the only one. Um, he was a miracle. But not only was he a miracle, he was the promised one. He was the one that Abraham and Sarah had been looking for and longing and waiting for for dozens of years. He was the promised heir. He was the one through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed, as God promised in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. I mean, he was the promised one. He was the one that through whom the Messiah was going to come, as it says in Galatians chapter 3, the gospel, the good news itself, was going to come through Isaac, Abraham's heir. And he was so special that when he was weaned, at about five years old, I'm guessing, that Sarah was so jealous for his being the special heir that she got Abraham to kick out of the house Hagar and Ishmael so that it would be really clear that Isaac alone was the promised one. So I think Isaac grew up knowing that he was pretty special, right? Uh, That he was really special. In fact, I think that maybe he grew up thinking he was too special. Maybe thinking that he was untouchable, invincible, that he was really needed by God because if the promise was going to be fulfilled, I mean, it's Isaac. There's no other option. If it was going to happen, it was going to happen through him, that God needed him to carry out his long-awaited promise. Well, then one morning... If you read in Genesis chapter 22, and I'm guessing that Isaac, and it's a guess, I've looked, we can't tell from the text, that Isaac was around maybe 16, 17 years old. It's a guess. I'm guessing because when they took off on this journey that God called Abraham to take, he put a whole load of wood on Isaac's back to, you know, carrying the wood that he was going to be sacrificed on. 
So I'm guessing he was a teenager. Let's say 16, 17. So one morning, his dad, Abraham, wakes him up out of a sound sleep, tells him, hurry up, get ready, we have to take off. We're going on a long journey, several days to the land of Moriah. Abraham refused to answer any questions where they were going except to say that they were going to make a sacrifice to God. So Abraham put the load of wood, strapped it to Isaac's back, and off they set for an unknown destination. With the wood, Abraham had the fire, like a you know, little can of lighter fuel, and a knife. That was a joke, no lighter fuel back then. They had the wood, they had the fire, they had the knife, but there was no lamb for the sacrifice. And so Isaac was a little confused, and he said, what about the lamb for the sacrifice? And, and the only thing that Abraham would simply and abruptly say was, God will provide. God will provide a lamb. And so they traveled to the place of sacrifice, to the land of Moriah. And it's very to the point when they arrived, Abraham built an altar and he bound and he lay Isaac on top of the altar. Now, being a teenager... Um, Isaac obviously could have resisted, right? Um, but he didn't. There's no indication in the story that there's any struggle or any resistance at all. And I, I'm guessing that Isaac, and we don't see in the text, but I'm guessing that Isaac is confused and he's terrified. <laughs> with what is happening to him. And, and yet, nevertheless, he submits because he's come to see over the years his dad is being someone who trusts God. I mean, he'd heard the stories of back before he was born of his dad so doubting God that he, at a couple of times, told in Egypt and, and then Abimelech, another guy in Gerar, that... His wife, Sarah, was his sister, so nobody would kill him. Um, I mean, he didn't trust God, but over the years, Isaac began to see his dad as someone that trusted God, that God sent something, and he believed, he took God as his word. And so, so he submits trustingly to his father, that his father knows what he's doing, although he doesn't have a clue what is happening, and he's got to be scared to death. But in his mind, he's thinking, didn't his dad say, and if you look in Genesis 22, his dad told the servants, I and the boy will go, we will worship, and then we will return. And so with those words ringing in his ears, despite how terrified he is, he submits, and there he is laying on the altar. As he's laying on the altar, looking up at his dad, um, who's poised at this point with a knife ready to plunge into his heart. Um, I think whatever is going through Isaac's mind at that time, it's got to be, I guess I'm not as indispensable as I thought I was. Um, I think in that moment... Isaac realized that 
Whereas he thought he was something, he's very quickly come to realize that God is something. (laughs) That he doesn't have a handle on God, that he doesn't have God over his need, so to speak, that God is God and no one is needed by God. God isn't dependent upon anyone to accomplish his purposes. To accomplish his promise, God didn't need Isaac or anyone else. That God is alone God. And as it says in Daniel uh, 4, he says that no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And I think Isaac is terrified. It's like for the first time, whereas he grew up thinking he was something, now he realizes that God's something, and, and God is bigger, and, and there's nothing he can do about it, and he's terrified. I think he realizes with stark terror that his arrogant sense of entitlement was foolish, that God wasn't indebted or beholden to him or anyone else. God was God, and he had no claim on God. And here he is laying on the altar with his dad about ready to kill him. And then in that moment, God speaks to his dad. And God simply says, Don't kill your son, for Abraham, now I know that you fear God because you haven't withheld your only son your son your only son from me and so Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw a ram caught in some bushes and he offered up the ram in the place of Isaac and at this point as Abraham lowers the knife and and retrieves the ram and together they offer up this ram in the place of Isaac, who thought his life was at an end, I think Isaac goes from being terrified of God's sovereignty to being terrified of God's mercy. He goes from being convinced of the the terrifying justness of his death for his pride where he presumed upon his importance to God and God's need of him to the terrifying realization that this holy God who could have justly killed him has mercifully forgiven him and provided for him. In Psalm 134, it says, Psalm 130, verse 4, it says, O Lord, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I like that. I think so often we think of fearing God as as His holiness or His righteousness. Here it says, with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are to be feared. It's like, it's like I think this, this transition that happened in Isaac's thinking, this terror over God's greatness and holiness and justice, now to this terror over His mercy and His forgiveness, like, how did I deserve this? And how did I... How has God shown me mercy? And I believe that from that moment on, Isaac was a man marked by the fear of God. The sovereignty and the mercy of God dominated his thinking from that point on. He became a man dominated by God, that God was God, that God could justly kill him, that God 
had instead mercifully saved him. Um, and I think a verse that helps us really kind of get this is in Genesis chapter 31. Listen to this. And this is where Jacob, it would be Isaac's son, is describing his father and his father's God. Listen to this. In Genesis 31, 53, Jacob says, May the God of Abraham, that's his grandfather, and may the God of Nahor, that's his grandfather on his mother's side, the God of their father judge between us. Now get this. This is, this is great. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. You get that? That's how Jacob described his father's God. He took an oath in the name of the fear, not the God of his father Isaac, but the fear of his father Isaac. How God has referred to uniquely in relation to Isaac. It's like Isaac's encounter with God that day marked him forever as a man who feared God. <laughs> um, a man that was dominated by God. What does it mean to be a person dominated by God from what we've seen here? Just four things that I, I think are important. To be a person who's dominated by God, we could call it theophobic, okay? God... Fear. A person dominated. Number one, it's that God is a God who demands soul allegiance. Right? It's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods besides me. I alone am God. Um, is that true in our lives? Or do we have other gods? What does it mean to be a person dominated by God and therefore a person whose life is meaningful instead of empty and meaningless? Number one, it's to be a person who, where God is alone their God. Number two, it's that God is a holy and just God to whom we are accountable and we be judged for our sins. You know, that's how... Ecclesiastes 12 actually ends. He says, Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. A person who is dominated by God is convinced that God alone is God and that God is a holy and just judge to whom we are accountable. He's the creator and we're his creation, and we're accountable to him. But not just that he's a holy and just judge, but that in Jesus he did judge our sin. He provided a substitute for our unrighteousness and our unholiness. So, so that the just judge of the universe poured his judgment upon Jesus, his son, so that in Jesus we can have forgiveness. And finally, that this God can be trusted, though such trust may at times seem absolutely absurd and terrifying, like it was for Abraham and Isaac. 
Are we a people dominated by God? How can such fear of God be ours? Three things. We have to be a people who are convinced that God is sovereign. Do you believe that this morning? Or do you you believe God needs you? (laughs) Um, It's incredible. God God does use us. We're his children. We're his beloved children. But God doesn't need us. He's God. To be a person who's dominated by God, we've got to be convinced that God is God and there's no one like him. Um, Number two, we've got to be convinced that God is judged, that he's holy and he must and will, because he's holy and righteous, that he will judge sin. And he must judge sin, otherwise he wouldn't be holy. He can't just let things go and let things slide. He's God. But then finally, that God is Savior. And to satisfy his own holiness and provide salvation for his people, he himself went to the cross to pay the penalty of our unrighteousness and our sinfulness, the penalty of our sin so that we could have relationship with Him. We could be His people. God is sovereign. God is judge. God is Savior. Uh, It was C.T. Studd who gave up, and I've shared this quote before, but to me it captures this, this understanding of being people who are dominated by God and awareness of God in a way that it impacts our pursuit of pleasure, our pursuit of work, our relationships, success, everything, because God is at the heart of it. We're mindful of God. C.T. Studd was a man who gave up athletic fame and immense wealth many years ago in England to go to China and eventually Africa where he died as a missionary. Uh, He did it because he was so dominated by an awareness of who his God was and what this God had done for him. And this is what he said. If Jesus is really God, do we believe that? If Jesus is really God, and if he really died on the cross for me, if the sovereign God of the universe really came and really died so that I could have a relationship with him, there is nothing too great that I shouldn't be willing to do for him. Do we know that God? He's sovereign. He's judge. And yet he's become our savior. It's the only way, according to Ecclesiastes, to truly live a meaningful life. In a world that is filled with emptiness and meaninglessness. It's being people who fear God. Let's pray. Father, it is so hard to be mindful of you. Like the way you end Ecclesiastes, remember your Creator, remember. Father, it is so hard to be mindful of you. It is so easy for our attention and our consciousness... uh, for our thinking to be just dominated by what's going on around us, by the busyness of life or, or the, the pains or the problems of life. God, I pray that you would help us to be a people 
who who live in active, awesome awareness of who you are, that you are God, that there's nothing impossible for you, that you are God and you are our God. God, help us to be a people who fear you. In Jesus' name.